Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. My name is John. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys giving us a little bit of time on this Sunday morning or whenever you do get a chance to watch us. Before I forget, just like I said last week, if for any reason this stream fails, I mean, you know how technology goes, um, but we're watching along with you and our staff will be quick to post a link to this video on our main Facebook page. So again, if for whatever reason you can't get back in, this fails, power goes out, just go to that main Facebook page and you will find that link to the video right there. But today we are in week three of this series that we're calling BC, where for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about what happened before it all happened. Meaning, what happened all those thousands of years before Jesus Christ came on the scene? And all throughout this series, we're going to be taking a look at key figures from the Old Testament, and we're going to be learning their stories. And our goal is to find out how their story impacts and influences our story. So today, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about a guy who really, when you think about the Bible, is pretty much the second most important person in the Bible outside of Jesus Christ. Um, well, I guess you could say Paul is probably the second most. I mean, I don't really know how official any of these rankings are. I mean, it's not like they're handing out mugs that say number two person in the Bible. But I mean, if they were, right, if this were a thing and, and these key figures were, were, you know, drinking out of these mugs, I would say a safe bet is that Moses would be, you know, well-deserving of a person to carry this mug around 2,000, 4,000 years ago, whatever the case may be. Um, but today what I want to do is I want to talk to you about Moses. Now, Moses, if you're not familiar with him, really has a pretty impressive resume in terms of things that he has been a part of and has accomplished. Um, he actually wrote the first five books of the Bible. So he wrote Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and for those of you who went to Sunday school, yes, I am singing that song in my head right now to remember, to remember those books. What else did he do? He was the one who helped lead the Israelites through the desert to the promised land. Notice I didn't say into, but just to. He was the one who received the Ten Commandments. He was there for the parting of the Red Sea. He was there to receive the initial instructions on Passover, and he was instrumental in sort of bringing the 10 plagues to Egypt. And those plagues, of course, were responsible for getting the Hebrews out of slavery. Not a bad CV. Now, imagine that none of that happened for Moses. I mean, imagine for just for a second that something got in the way, something took him off course, and for whatever reason, Moses missed out on God's amazing story for the Jewish people. See, what I want to do today is, rather than cover the entirety of his story, which quite frankly would be impossible to do for Moses, what I want to do today is zone in on how his story almost didn't happen. There's a time in his life when God called him to do something new and something amazing and Moses didn't think that he'd be able to handle it. And I just think this is an important story for us right now because I think a lot of us are just going through a lot. I think a lot of us are being called to perhaps move in new directions in life. I think a lot of us have some big decisions we need to make. And if we're not careful, if we're not really listening to God, we might miss out 
on some of the greatest blessings in our life. So where do we start with Moses? Well, Moses was born in about 1447 BC. You know, we figure this out by taking a look at various documents within the Old Testament. So scholars think about 1440 BC. However, his story didn't actually start until about, rather I should say, his story actually started about 600 years earlier with a man named Abraham. Now, if you've been coming to DHC for about a year or two years, you'll remember that we actually did a message on Abraham. And we learned that God gave Abraham three promises. God told Abraham that, look, even though you are old, he was like in his 80s, I think, at this point. He goes, even though you're old, you're going to have a son. In fact, you're, you're going to have so many descendants that they're going to be like the stars in the sky. And of course, God at that moment was talking about the Jewish nation that was to come. And the last promise that he said to Abraham is that through your descendants, the entire world will be blessed. And of course, God was speaking about Jesus Christ. And then God gives him somewhat of a um, foreboding promise, I guess you would say. I was going to say prophecy. I don't think God gives prophecies. He just gives promises. He says this to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13 through 14. God says, you can be sure. You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But, there's good news, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them and they will come away with great wealth. And I always want to camp out on this verse for a little bit because this really is the blueprint for much of Moses's stories. Let me kind of dive in a little bit and explain what's going on here. So the first part of it says, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. So what does that mean? Now, remember last we talked about Joseph and Joseph, uh, a Hebrew boy, eventually became the prime minister of Egypt. And there was a great famine and his brothers, remember, came to, came to Egypt to get food. He eventually forgave him. Now, part of the story that we didn't cover is that Joseph invited his brothers, all of his family, to live in Egypt. And he took care of them. And, and they got married and they had kids and they, they put down roots. And year after year, their families just grew and grew and grew and grew. And it got to such a point that there were so many Hebrews inside of Egypt that, that the Egyptians got nervous and the Pharaoh put them into slavery for 400 years. But God had a plan. God's plan is that he was going to use Moses to punish the nation that enslaves them. He's talking about Egypt. And these um, Israelites would come away. They would leave with great wealth. And you see all of that in the book of Exodus. And that's where our story picks up today, some 600 years later. So today we're going to be in the book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 4. But we're going to kick off in Exodus 1, verses 6 and 7. And it says this. Now, Joseph, from last week. Now, Joseph and all of his brothers and um, all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Just talked about this. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. It continues. It says, then the new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He goes, look, guys, here's the deal. The Israelites have just become far too numerous for us. So 
come. We must deal shrewdly with them. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Now, this didn't really stop the Hebrews. So um, Pharaoh kind of ratcheted up the opposition. And he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. He told them that every Hebrew boy that is born, you must, you must, you must throw them into the Nile. But you can let every girl live. Now, that's a problem. That's, that's, that's an issue. I mean, it's one thing to be in slavery. It's another thing that whenever you have a child and it's a boy, you have to kill that child. Enter Moses. Exodus 2.1. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. That's Moses. Okay? When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So... She has this child, it's a boy, she loves this child, and she just can't bear to, to throw this kid away, so she hides him. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the Nile, which kicks off a really great part of the story. So Moses' mother puts him on the side of the Nile, and what happens? The Pharaoh's own daughter, she walks down to the riverbanks, she begins to bathe, and she sees this basket with this child, and this child is now crying, and it dawns on her, and she goes, well, this, just, this must be a Hebrew child. And so the Pharaoh's daughter, her, her servant girl, comes over to her and says, hey, ma'am, do you want me to go and find a, a wet nurse who can take care of this child? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, honestly, that's a, that's a that's a good idea. Would you go find somebody? Interesting side note, the servant girl, that was Moses' um, sister. And the wet nurse that she went to get, Moses' mom. So Moses' mom got to nurse Moses for who knows how long, a couple more weeks, a couple more months, maybe in a couple more years. But eventually, Pharaoh's daughter officially adopted Moses. Now, we don't know too much about Moses' formative years. He didn't really talk about that. You know, he's the one who's writing this. He didn't really talk about his childhood too much. But we do get a hint about his childhood in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, we read this. And when he, speaking about Moses, and when he had been abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, brought him up as her own. So Moses, and here's the important part, was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So what does that mean? He was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Well, scholars will tell you that that essentially means that Moses would have had a private tutor, and he would have been taught to speak multiple languages. He would have learned Hebrew. He would have learned Egyptian and any number, one of the sort of surrounding languages. He would have been taught to read and write, so he would have been able to read those hieroglyphics and all that cool kind of stuff. He would have had tremendous wealth. He would have had tremendous opportunities. And yet, in spite of all that, Moses was very much a foreigner in a strange land. He was not unaware, shall we say, of his background. I mean, he knew he wasn't Egyptian. He knew that he was a Hebrew, and he probably felt some tangible disconnect between himself and his Egyptian 
counterparts. And I've got to imagine, and I don't know this for sure, but I've, I've got to imagine it was one of those things where he probably, as a child, wasn't really allowed to play in all the reindeer games. I, I bet he was sort of made to feel like an outcast at the time, even though he was royalty. And so he's living his life. He's living in the palace. All the while, he saw the subjugation of his, of his people and the oppression of his people happening all around him. So one day, one day after Moses had grown up, and we know this is about at the age of 40, um, around the age of 40, he went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. So I was reading this this week, and I was thinking, you know, he, he went out to go watch them at, the, at their hard labor. Why did he go out there? I, I mean, honestly, it's a, it's, I think it's a decent question. Why would you leave the palace where, based on the footage that I've seen from the movie The Ten Commandments, you are waited on by hand and foot with, you know, women wearing what appear to be bikinis, fanning you with palm branches and feeding you grapes. Why would you leave that to go out into the hot, disgusting mud pits? Why would he do that? Well, Moses doesn't really tell us, but we find a clue again in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 25 says this, he, meaning Moses, chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So I don't know exactly what that means, but my guess is that at some point God's spirit was perhaps no longer letting Moses be comfortable in the sinful environment that was Egyptian royalty. So it would appear as though Moses is beginning to spend more and more time with the Hebrews. And his eyes are beginning to be open to the evil that's happening all around him. And, and he's beginning to see the plight of his people. And so one day we read that he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And looking this way and that and, and seeing that no one's around, right? He's kind of looking around. Anybody watching? No. He killed the Egyptian. And he hit him in the sand. You know, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked one in the wrong. He goes, what, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who are you, or pardon me, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are, are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian? And that kind of freaked Moses out. And Moses was afraid. And he thought, oh, gosh, like the word is out. What I did must have become known. And sure enough, it did. We read that Pharaoh, when he heard this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went into the land of Midian. So everything kind of falls apart for Moses, and he flees Egypt, and he goes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away to a town called Midian. And when he's there, he kind of starts a new life. He meets a woman. He starts to work for her dad as a shepherd. And for the next 40 years, he lives in seclusion and virtual anonymity. So think about this for a second. Think about Moses. Think about this. This is a guy who had it all. I mean, I mean, he had it all. Life was good. But because of one impulsive decision to kill this man, he lost everything. The power he had, gone. The position he had, gone. The influence, the wealth, all vanished. It's over. 
okay? Now, at 80, I think it's fair to say that Moses is probably looking at his life and he says, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I mean, I really, I don't know what else, I don't know what more I, I can really do in this world. I mean, based on my past, all the things that I've done, sort of based on my current circumstances, my, my really lack of future hopes and dreams, I mean, well, man, I'm 80. I mean, there's really no chance that I can make a difference in this world. So one day, Moses, at the age of 80, he's out working the field still, when all of a sudden there appeared the angel of the Lord um, in flames of fire from within a bush. So this is the burning bush. This is perhaps one of the most famous images in the entire Bible. And what it is is a bush that is on fire, and yet it is not being consumed by the flames. So Moses, seeing this odd sight, walks up to it. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. So the, the, the first thing that he hears is his own name. And God says to him, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I have concern about their suffering. He says, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land filled, or sorry, flowing with milk and honey. And Moses is like, well, this sounds great. I mean, the, yeah, this is a great plan. They're really going to, honestly, this is a great plan. They're going to they're gonna love this. They're going to be pumped. I mean, I actually tried to, to, to help them a while back. And then when it goes so well and kill the guy, we don't need to talk about that. Um, but I think you're onto something, God. I think this is a great plan. And God's like, look, I'm really happy that you think this is a great plan. So now go. Um, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. To which Moses at the age of 80 is like, I'm sorry, what was that? Because I like with all the fire and everything, I didn't exactly hear you. But it sounded like you said that you were going to send me to Egypt to go talk to the Pharaoh. Is that what you said? And God said, That's, yes, you heard me correctly. In fact, I've been planning this for over 600 years. So I want to camp out on this sort of dialogue that's going to be taking next. Because here's something that I firmly believe based on what we're going to see here in the life of Moses. I firmly believe that there will be a time in your life when God will call you to do something new. I, I just think there's going to be a, a time in your life when he's going to call you to go in some new direction, whether it's a, a career move, maybe it's some ministry thing he wants you to get involved in, maybe, maybe it's with your family, maybe it's with a, with a geographical move, maybe it's going to be some challenge for, for, for personal character development. I don't know exactly what it is, but I believe that at some point, every single one of you, if it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. You will have your own personal burning bush experience. When God taps you on your shoulder and asks you to make a move. And our response in that moment can have an enormous impact on the trajectory of our life. And what we're going to see in the remainder of our time is that Moses, this very famous man, Moses is going to wrestle with the same trepidations, the same questions, the same fears, the same excuses, okay, that I think all of us wrestle with when God shows up 
and presents an opportunity to us. So Moses hears this plan. Moses hears this sort of opportunity to do this thing. And the very first question that he has for God is this. He says, uh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? How many times this week? How many times in your life? How many times perhaps even today did an opportunity come your way and your first reaction was to think, who am I? Who I'm sorry, who am I? For Moses, Moses goes, well, I mean, I'm a shepherd. Uh, I'm 80. I'm too ordinary. I'm not qualified. Here's the truth. What God puts before you will never look achievable if you look to your qualifications. Because there's always going to be some qualification, there's always going to be some quality that you don't possess that's going to prevent you from saying yes to what God wants for your life. The, the fact is this, there's going to be a million reasons why you can't open the door when God knocks. But God's answer to Moses is the same answer that he would give to us. God says this, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now, I think this is fascinating. I think it's fascinating that God didn't point out Moses' background because God could have said, well, honestly, on paper, you're, you're, you are really the perfect man for the job. I mean, you're the perfect candidate. I mean, you were, you, you were raised Hebrew, so you're Hebrew, um, but, but, but you lived in the Pharaoh's house. You speak both languages. You can write both languages. You know all the government officials. I mean, honestly, you're the perfect go-between. You are the absolute perfect liaison. But God didn't say any of this. God only pointed to himself. Why? Because our qualifications, apart from God, they just don't matter. I mean, whether you are qualified or you are not qualified doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that God will be with you. So if you're going through, you know, the toughest transition in your life, what do you look to? Not your qualifications. God says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Don't worry. I mean, if you're facing the greatest challenge in your life, God says, I will be with you. If you feel God's finger tapping on your shoulder, saying, I want you to go that way, God promises that he will be with you, whatever the case may be. You don't need to worry about whether you're qualified to do what God is calling you to do. Paul, in the New Testament, says it like this. He says, it's not that we think we're qualified to do anything on our own. He says, our qualifications come from God, which means that God is more than able to make up for any lack of ability that you feel that you have. So if God has brought you to it, God will bring you through it. Now, that all sounds good, right? You go, ah, that sounds good. But Moses had another question. Moses looks at God and goes, all right, who are you? I mean, if I'm going to do this thing, I mean, if you're going to, if I'm going to go back to Egypt, if I'm going to go speak to the Pharaoh, if I'm supposed to lean on you to get me through this, I got to know, who are you? I think this is a question that every single one of us has asked at what point. Who are you, God? Now, this is not really a strange question for Moses to be asking when you think about it. Moses, 
essentially grew up Egyptian. He would have been taught the Egyptian gods. And now, even if he didn't worship those gods, and I don't think he did, the Hebrews for 430 years, all they knew was slavery. The, o- the only thing they knew about God was, was some stories about how their ancestors interacted with God. So for him asking, who are you? That's not really that crazy of a question. So Moses said to God, suppose I go. He goes, hypothetically, I say yes, okay? Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, well, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? And what shall I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, I think, honestly, I think that is like the coolest name. In other, in other parts of the Bible, it's translated, I will be what I will be. And I just think God's name communicates the fact that God is the one that can meet every single one of our needs. And we see that all throughout Scripture, God, for lack of a better term, sort of morphs his name, because I don't know the proper term, um, probably should look that up, but God sort of morphs his name to meet each situation. We see him say that I am your provision. That's Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah is, how, is the Hebrew pronunciation of, of what I am would have been. Jehovah Jireh. He says, I am your victory, Jehovah Nisi. I am your peace, Jehovah Shalom. Interesting side note, Jesus would shock his audience by invoking the name I am to describe himself. He would say things like, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. And I am the way and the truth and the life. So when God says, who am I? I am the one who will be with you every step of the way. I am the one that will be whatever you need me to be in whatever situation you find yourself in. Wow. Now that's a promise. And you would think that would be enough for Moses, but it ain't. Moses goes, all right, what if, what if, I go, what if they do not believe me? What if, what if they do not listen to me? This is interesting, what he says here. Now, based on this, let me, let me pose a question to you. Who is keeping God's best out of your life? Because Moses hears this great plan. God, he hears this, this promise that God is going to be with him. And yet he says, yeah, but what are they going to think? So is there somebody in your life right now? Or do you think there will be someone in your life right now that if you said yes to God's new plan for your life, they'll reject you? And because of that fear of rejection, you just never take the risk. See, rejection is a powerful force. Others' perception can have a lot of influence over us. I've even seen people influenced by those who have passed away. I mean, I've heard them say, you know, what would my, what would my parents think if? And because we're afraid, we never take that leap of faith to follow God. So in this situation, when he says, well, what what are they thinking? God answers his question with a question. The Lord said to him this. He goes, what's that in your hand? Moses goes, well, it's a a staff. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. 
So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. I love that. He ran away. Then the Lord said to him, here, here's what I want you to do. Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. To which Moses replied, no, thank you. No, he didn't say that. He picked it up. And when he, when he picked it up, the snake turned back into a staff. See, here's, here's what I think is happening. Here's sort of my read on, on this situation right here. When we get caught up in the what will they think kind of situation, God's solution is to take what's in our hand and put it in his. That we should take whatever's going on in our life, fear or, or whatever that might be, and he wants us to throw it down before him and to trust him with it. Why? Because when we put things in God's hands, things change. They do. Staffs become a snake. In God's hands, problems become a promise. In God's hands, disappointment can become a dream. In God's hands, your greatest hurt can be transformed into your greatest ministry. And in Moses' debate with God, he, like we, and we're hearing all this, often have one issue, just, just one issue that we kind of point to and we say, well, what about this? What, what about this? And this thing, whatever this is, it's different for all of us. But whatever this is in your life, that one issue, it's the one thing that we always go back to that we believe will preclude us from saying yes to what God wants for our life. For Moses, he said, pardon your servant, Lord. But I know you want me to speak to Pharaoh, but I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And there's all kinds of speculation as to what exactly this means. There are some theologians that believe perhaps he may have had a stutter. There are others that believe he perhaps maybe had a, a speech impediment. And to be honest, part of me wonders if this is just in his head, if this is perhaps just a, a perceived weakness, something that doesn't even exist. And I'll tell you why I think that. I read something in the New Testament. And we read the first half of this verse earlier, but I want you to look at the second half of this verse in Acts. Remember, it said that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. But then it says this, and was powerful in speech and action. Isn't that interesting, right? So was he eloquent or was he inarticulate? What, what's, what, what's going on? See, the reality is it doesn't matter because whether he was really inarticulate or whether it was just a perceived problem, it felt like a weakness that prevented him from taking the next step in his life. I just think we all have this one issue. I don't know what yours is. Maybe it's your past. Maybe it's a, a, a lack of education. I don't know. Maybe it's, a, it's an actual handicap. But whatever this one thing is, it's the one thing, it's the reason we always point to why we think that we can't do what God is calling us to do. And I love God's response. The Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? Right, it is. Now go. He's like, are we done here? Now go, all right? I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. God's saying, Moses, I'm in control, all right? I know your weaknesses, 
And I love your weaknesses. You know why I love your weaknesses? Because it's through your weaknesses that people see me, and I want them looking at me. Now, in the New Testament, God expounds on this idea. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God says this, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weaknesses. God's saying, you don't need to worry about that one aspect of your life. That thing you're always worrying about, the thing you think is holding you back, you don't need to worry about that. That area that you, you don't think you measure up in, you don't need to worry about that because it's in that very weakness that I, God, can work wonders. It's why Paul says, so now, with that knowledge, I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses. <laughs> They're not a bother to me. So that the power of Christ can work through me for when I am weak, then I am strong. God wants you to be aware of his power because he is aware of your weaknesses. But in spite of this encouragement, in spite of all the promises, Moses just still couldn't get his eyes off his shortcomings. It says that he pleaded. He said, Lord, please, please send anyone else. Now, I just think, this is amazing because you look at all of Moses' accomplishments and right here, it almost fell apart. Right here, the entire thing almost came to an end before it even started. See, the reality is that it is possible to take yourself out of the game. God has a plan for this world and he invites us to be a part of that plan. But if we pass up on that opportunity, guess what? It doesn't stop his plan. Doesn't thwart God. He'll find somebody else to do it. And we are the ones who miss out on the blessing. And right here, Moses was this close to missing out on the greatest movement of God outside of the resurrection. Now, thankfully, God doesn't give up on us so easily because you're worth the effort. So he pursued Moses. And the Lord became angry with Moses and he goes, All right. It's like, Okay, enough. He goes, Aaron, your brother, he'll be your spokesman for the people. He will be your mouthpiece. He'll do all the talking. And you will stand in the place of God for him, telling him what to say. And with that, Moses agreed. Moses said yes to God at the age of 80. When the world looked at him and said, you're done. But when he looked at himself and he said, I'm, I'm done, God looked at him and said, you're only just beginning. See, Moses had no idea what was in store for his life. No idea. He had no idea about the parting of the Red Sea. He had no idea about the Ten Commandments. He had no idea about the plagues. He didn't say yes to any of that. The only thing he said yes to was taking the very next step with God. Now imagine what God has in store for you if you just say yes. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? Every single week at DHC, we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So I was thinking about this message this week. And, and you know, we live in a very uncertain time. Shall we say that? There is lots of upheaval. Many of you have job concerns. Many of you have family concerns. Life might look a little bit scary right now. And I think a lot of us perhaps have some big decisions we made, some new directions to perhaps go in life. So here's my question for you. What is God calling you to do? What, what is the burning bush in your life right now? What's the next chapter in your life that when you look at it, you say, 
I don't think I can handle that. I, I, I'm scared of that. I'm not qualified to go that way, God. What if that challenge, think about this for a second. What if that challenge could be the beginning of the greatest blessing of your life? My advice, based on the story of Moses, trust God and say yes, and he will be with you. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come together today over the internet. Lord, I want to thank you that the story of Moses has survived for 4,000 years. What an amazing story, Lord. I pray, God, that we are encouraged today to know that you are with us. Lord, that you have a plan for our lives, God. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you are tapping on our shoulders right now, Lord, if you have a new challenge that you want us to do, a new direction, I pray, God, that you would give us the strength and the confidence to say, yes, God. Because we don't want to miss out on the blessings that you have in store for our lives. And we know that whatever's going to come our way, that we can handle it, not because of our qualifications, but because you promised to be what we need in any situation. And we put all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.